Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. We are in Advent. And, of course, we are thinking of what leads up to uh, Advent leads up to, which is, of course, the Feast of the Nativity, which will bring to mind uh, all the uh, uh, stories from Luke and Matthew regarding the uh, Nativity. Gospel of Matthew uh, and the Gospel of Luke are both two really precious sources of revealed material regarding the uh, birth of the, really the conception and the birth of Jesus, and then the early years of his life uh, as a member of the Holy Family. Joining me right now to talk a little bit about the Gospel of Matthew and its understanding of uh, the conception and birth of Jesus is Dr. Leroy Husingay. He is Administrative Chair of Arts and Letters and Associate Professor of Theology at the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. He's author of Behold the Christ, Proclaiming the Gospel of Matthew. And he's joined us once before, and uh, at the time I enjoyed it and wanted to make sure I had him back. Dr. Husingay, good to have you back here. Thanks. Yep, thanks for having me again. The challenge of St. Matthew's Gospel to the Spirit of the Age. What is it? Well, the spirit of our current age is Gnostic. And Gnosticism is an ancient philosophy, and when it becomes Christian, a heresy that says matter is bad, bodies are bad, uh, and because of that, babies are bad. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a desire to escape from the world because it sees the world as a horrible, dark place. It sees our souls imprisoned in bodies. Um, And so when Gnosticism becomes a Christian heresy, uh, it is anti-sacramental, anti-liturgical, and often uh, immoral. Since the body doesn't matter, uh, Gnostics think you can do whatever you want with it. Mm-hmm. And this is a, it's a perennial heresy rooted in a very bad reading of the philosopher Plato. Um, we've had to deal with it in the early church, uh, in the medieval church, with the Cathars and Albigensians, and some people have suggested uh, that America itself is fundamentally Gnostic. Yeah, yeah. No, I've I've heard that Americans are like Gnostics today. Uh, they want to reject uh, any. They want all constraints. Freedom for them is an antinomian license. You write, um, and it's interesting. Most people think, though, this is what's funny. When people think of uh, antinomian license, they think of, of course. Normally, they think about the indulging the pleasures of the flesh. Uh, and yet, uh, Gnosticism uh, privileges uh, knowledge or the mind uh, or the soul over uh, the body. So there's, some, there's something paradoxical about this, that on the one hand, it would fav- Gnosticism favors the indulgence of the flesh, but on the other hand, it uh, values its um, liberation from uh, the prison of the body. How do you make sense of that? Well, St. Irenaeus, uh, back in the second century, wrote a lot about Gnosticism, and he noticed that Gnostics had these two opposite tendencies. Mm -hmm. Some of them were antinomian, uh, immoral, and again, because the body doesn't matter, you might as well uh, enjoy it. Right. Right. Other Gnostics went the other way, and they were extremely ascetic. 
uh, minimal eating, maybe only vegetables and water for a diet, um, no exercise of the sexual function, uh, you know, no pleasure whatsoever for fear that overuse of the body would drag down the soul. Mm-hmm. But that Gnostics could run in either direction with that kind of speaks to the uh, fundamental incoherence of Gnosticism. Uh, Any time you have a problem relating the soul to the body, uh, you have this kind of incoherence, you know, so you think of someone like the French philosopher René Descartes, he could never figure out how the uh, mind ultimately related to the body, you know, and so he's given modernity all sorts of, uh, a legacy of all sorts of problems because of that mind-body split. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess you just simply have to say Gnosticism is incoherent. Is incoherent, right. Yeah, is ultimately incoherent. Uh, Pope Francis, in uh, his, uh, uh, I think it's an apostolic exhortation on uh, holiness, Gaudate Exultate, uh, points out that uh, we are plagued today by Gnosticism as well as Pelagianism. So this seems to be an ongoing uh, challenge uh, to the Church. Certainly. Uh, when you look to the the Gospel of Matthew, looking at the origins of Jesus Christ, uh, looking at the genealogy, uh, looking at the uh, the way uh, the Son of God is received uh, in the Feast of the Nativity, is this uh, does Matthew have in mind? A challenge to Gnosticism? I don't know if it's uh, in the forefront of his mind. Uh, what we call Gnosticism is incipient in Platonic philosophy, and basically everybody's kind of philo- every pagan's philosophical understanding of the ancient world. Um, the soul took precedence over the body, uh, the material world was illusory. Um, you know, so another way of putting it is to say that, you know, Jesus and Matthew are Jews who value creation and value matter, and a lot of people in the ancient world, whether formal, formal Gnostics or not, um, didn't quite know what to do with the body and didn't think it was the essence of a human person anyway. So when you read the Gospel of Matthew, simply because it's a Jewish-Christian document, it can't help but be anti-Gnostic, simply by its very constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, I set, in the book, I set up everything with a chapter reflecting on Gnosticism, ancient and modern, precisely because of that reason. Um, I think we live in a Gnostic age, and Matthew's Gospel, by its very constitution, is anti-Gnostic to the core. It's mm-hmm. gritty. You can almost feel you know, the dust of Jerusalem and the fields of yeah. Galilee. Uh, in Matthew, you know, Jesus founds uh, a religion, a church, you know, with a ritual yep. at its center, uh, right. the sacrifice of the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that really does fly in the face of uh, Gnostic tendencies. Uh, let me let me jump uh, to the genealogy in Matthew and what we can learn from the genealogy. Uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, 
so obviously Matthew is interested in establishing historical uh, precedent uh, and antecedents to the coming uh, of Messiah. Uh, why mention the son of David before the son of Abraham? Well, I, you know, translation is always interpretation. So like when you pick up an English translation of the Bible, the translators, um, the translators have made interpretive decisions that lead them to render the Greek a certain way into English. Yes. Uh-huh. And so in that very first verse, scholars debate whether St. Matthew intends to introduce just the genealogy or actually the entire gospel. And I happen to think he's trying to introduce the entire gospel. Ah, okay. Because the genealogy has three parts. Right. Right? Three right. divisions of 14 generations. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the first verse only mentions uh, son of David, son of Abraham. Mm-hmm. And that's two, right? <laughs> no, so right. The, the first verse doesn't match the genealogy very well. So what I think Matthew is doing is presenting Jesus as son of David, which means Messiah. Almost everybody expected, you know, the Messiah to be the son of David. Mm -hmm. But then he's got a problem, because Jesus, the Messiah, gets crucified. And no Jew expected the Messiah to be crucified by his enemies. The Messiah is supposed to destroy Israel's enemies. So he introduces a second category, son of Abraham, which means Isaac, right? The true son of Abraham. Mm -hmm. And what did Isaac do in the Old Testament? Well, not much, except almost get sacrificed uh, by his father. Right. And some Jews in Matthew's day think Isaac was actually, in fact, sacrificed and brought back to life by the resurrection. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, he, Matthew sets up these two great Christological categories, Messiah and new Isaac, son of David, son okay. of Abraham, to explain how Jesus can be both uh, the Christ, but also a Christ who winds up crucified. Mm-hmm. He's not only Christ, Messiah, he's also this new Isaac, this new sacrifice. So as Isaac was the son of Abraham, his father, so Jesus is the son of God, uh, his father. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's a, it's a, that's a fascinating parallel. Uh, talk to us about the, the three boxes there of 14. What is uh, what's the significance of... Three fourteens, and um, should we be concerned that this is an artificial construction of genealogy? Uh, he's clearly missing, jumping over. He must be jumping over people, right? So, is, is that permissible? Uh, it certainly is. Um, one thing we got to remember when we're dealing with questions of biblical inspiration and inerrancy is that any solid Christian, specifically Catholic, account of inspiration and inerrancy uh, allows ancient authors to be ancient authors and <laughs> use the very conventions yes. of their day. Right, right. Right? It's, it's not like, you know, they're writing and we're interpreting uh, as computers outside of history, reading bina- writing and reading binary code to each other. Right, right. right. Um, so under the aegis of the Holy Spirit, ancient authors have a whole lot of freedom, you know, to shape their material to tell the truth about Jesus. Now, I'm convinced um, that, you know, Matthew himself would have had 
access to the genealogical records uh, that ancient Jews actually kept, uh, especially in the temple. Um, you know, these things were, you know, were kept. I mean, it was a functioning society, just like we keep genealogical records today. So I don't think he's just making stuff, stuff out of whole cloth, but, you know, we always shape the stories we tell, you know, the, mm-hmm. the daily details of our lives. I mean, we're telling our friends about them. You know, we select certain things and deselect others and shape things a certain way. Right. It's just how human language works. And so when Matthew does this, he chooses those names and arranges them 3 by 14 to make a subtle point. It reinforces that Jesus is the Davidic Messiah because David's name in Hebrew has three consonants and Jews using letters for numbers, those three consonants add up to 14. Oh, okay. Uh, Hold it there if you would, uh, Dr. Husengay. We'll be back continuing Behold the Christ, Proclaiming the Gospel of Matthew. Dr. Leroy Husengay, my guest. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Taking a look at what Matthew tells us about uh, Christ and his nativity, we are looking uh, again at the early chapters, the first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, with Dr. Leroy Husengay. He is author of Behold the Christ, Proclaiming the Gospel of Matthew. It's an outstanding, uh, well, really, it's a commentary based really on lectionary readings. And so uh, we're taking a look at the end of the last break, we were talking about uh, the ancient author's uh, tendency to find, create meaning by number. And we've got in the genealogy of Jesus, we've got these three blocks of 14, clearly uh, shaped by Matthew to make a particular point. And uh, the three consonants of David's name, uh, King David's name, total 14, and uh, are there are other 14s that are significant there. Uh, could you ask that again, please? Yes, yeah, so you've got David, the content, David's name, uh, the consonants there total 14. Um, mm-hmm. do, do the, do, do the are there other meanings that can be derived from the 14s, uh, say 42 or something? Oh, like I that? see. Yeah. yeah, I see. Um, well, it's. Uh, it's uh, maybe a bit hard to explain over the radio. It's helpful to see it on the page. Ah, okay. So I just ask your uh, listeners to trust me. But the genealogy also uh, points to Isaac, son of Abraham, in that if you trace out the generations, it brings you to something called the 49th Jubilee. And wow. a lot of ancient Jewish texts, uh, say that Isaac was to be born in this 49th Jubilee from the creation of the world. Uh, it, uh, Yeah, to do it on the radio it is, it would wow. be kind of complex, but yeah. that's the long and the short of it. So again, the point would be the genealogy um, itself reinforces what uh, Matthew has sketched in the first verse, that Jesus is both uh, Messiah and sacrifice, son of David, son of Abraham, Isaac. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about um, St. Joseph's uh, dream and uh, 
w- the way he's presented in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, um, he's a, he is kind of the strong, silent type, it looks to me. Um, what do you make of his characterization? Yeah, Joseph is, for being such an important saint, you know, also an elusive figure. Yeah. Uh, who doesn't have, you know, speaking parts in the New Testament. Now, in Matthew, uh, Mary doesn't have any speaking parts either, right? You just get the narrator telling you in chapter 1 what's going on, whereas, you know, in the Gospel of Luke, Mary sings a Magnificat, has a conversation with Elizabeth, and, you know, chats with Gabriel, you know, these sorts of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, So part of that's just how Matthew tells the story. So what we see in... um, Matthew's story of Joseph, where Joseph functions as a character, is that, you know, he's pious, he's described as righteous, and when he learns Mary is pregnant, you know, Matthew tells us that he desired to put her away, you know, to uh, break off the betrothal quietly, right? And he could have, under Jewish law, technically had her stoned to death. Um, But he doesn't do that, and very few Jews, if any, were doing that by Jesus' day anyway. Mm Uh, but he, he, he thinks he should break off the engagement. And the question is, why? I mean, everybody's first thought is that Joseph thinks he's been cheated on, he's embarrassed, you know, cuckolded. And, you know, that's, it's kind of hard, hard to go into a marriage, you know, when something like that has happened. <laughs> right, yes. um, you know, but a more pious answer, a more pious answer uh, is that he actually knows and what's gone on here, that the Holy Spirit has caused Mary's conception of uh, baby Jesus. And, you know, that makes her, you know, basically a new temple, a new Ark of the Covenant, because she's got, you know, God in her belly. Mm. And so there's no way that he should enter into marriage with her. So either of those two options, I think, work in Matthew's story. The, the second one is more pious. Yeah. And then, of course, in chapter 2, he's the great protector of the Holy Family, because Herod has these murderous intentions, and in response to a dream, uh, an angel in a dream, he takes the Holy Family on a reverse exodus and flees to Egypt to escape uh, Herod and his soldiers. And i got to think, you know, flying by night in the ancient world that way and just getting out of Dodge to save your family's life... um, you know, that's that's a pretty hardcore thing to right. do in the ancient world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but uh, it was, it, he obviously he felt it was necessary, given uh, Herod's intentions. Uh, so he must have, you know, he, he must have had a sense uh, that uh, this was an, uns- this, these were dangerous times for, for his son. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Uh, so he's, you know, I think it's right to think of him as, a, if, if not the strong silent type, uh, though he is silent yeah. in the New Testament, you know, to think of him as very strong. Um, and, you know, I don't know if people ever think about this, you know, because sometimes we don't have a very deep understanding of Christology, you know, but, you know, Jesus as a grown man is a reflection of his parents. They actually raised him. You know, Jesus is fully human, and he had right. to be shaped and formed by his parents. You know, so everything you see in, in Jesus is a credit not only to the Blessed Virgin or to, you know, Jesus' nature is divine, you know, but also to Joseph, you know, being the, his father. Yeah. Uh, we were talking uh, about Abraham earlier. I'm wondering, are, are there, do you see parallels between Sarah and Mary? in uh, this, these early chapters of Matthew? 
Yeah, certainly. In the um, virgin birth uh, announcement where the angel tells Joseph to go ahead and marry the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, you know, the broader principle here is to understand the New Testament. It really helps. It's necessary even to know the old as well as you can, because every New Testament document is shot through with the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the matrix of the New Testament. And so almost every verse has some subtle allusion to the Old Testament, if not a formal quotation. Mm-hmm. So when the angel says to Joseph in Matthew one eighteen and following, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She's conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will bear you a son, and you will call his name Jesus. That's an allusion to Genesis 17.19, in which uh, God says to Abraham, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you will call his name Isaac. Mm. Uh, so you, you hear it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Your listeners hear it, right? Marry your wife, right? Mm-hmm. Will bear you a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you will call his name Isaac. Right. And so, you know, the Jesus-Isaac parallel there is obvious, but a lot of early church fathers like St. John Chrysostom uh, point out uh, analogies between Sarah and Mary, and at first you think they don't quite fit because Sarah's old and barren and Mary is young and virginal. Um, but they're both women who are outside the bounds of childbearing status. Neither of them are supposed to be having children. And right. both children are miraculously conceived. Yes. Now, there's also differences that are important, right? Sarah's old and barren. Right. And Isaac is born, conceived and born in the natural way. Uh Mary conceives Jesus supernaturally and bears him with supernatural grace. Uh, And so Chrysostom points out, for all sorts of reasons, that it's actually easier. He's got a rhetorical point here. It's easier for Mary to conceive and give birth than it was for Sarah. Because Mary's actually uh, young and healthy, um, whereas Sarah was not. And so his, his rhetorical point is like, you know, listen up, my Jewish friends. You know, if you believe that Sarah could conceive Isaac, you shouldn't have any problem believing in principle that Mary could conceive Jesus in this way. <laughs> Very good. I like that. Uh, the significance of the virgin birth, the virginal conception in the ancient world, uh, you often hear critics of uh, Christianity say, oh, it was common to have, uh, you know, great leaders have uh, stories of miraculous uh, conceptions and births. And this is just another uh, imitation of pagan stories about, uh, you know, great leaders' uh, conception and birth. So what makes this different? Yeah, I think that's that's overblown. There was a trend in scholarship in the 19th and early 20th century to see Christianity uh, in analog with uh, pagan mystery cults. Right. Um, and scholarship has really given up on that. Um, <laughs> scholarship has realized that, you know, early Christianity is fundamentally Jewish. Right. You know, right. part of that is because we realized Judaism was a lot more diverse, especially in the Greco-Roman world, than we once thought. Um, so I, I think the idea that Christians, you know, just ripped off um, virgin birth stories from the pagan world and slapped them on Jesus, I don't think it works very well. When you actually compare the stories, there's a lot of differences, mm-hmm. a lot of differences. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I'd point out, you know, that 
people don't often notice, or makes them a little uncomfortable maybe, is that the quotation of Isaiah in Matthew 1, sure. 23, mm-hmm. uh, originally doesn't have much to do with a virgin birth. Right. Uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah 7 is you know, prophesying uh, the birth of one of his own natural children mm-hmm. as a sign over and against um, what's going on in Israel that day, the uh, Assyrian siege of Jerusalem. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's not really a forward-looking prophecy of a messianic virgin birth. Uh, Jews didn't think the Messiah would be born of a virgin. You don't find that in rabbinics. You don't find that in Jewish literature. Um, and so, you know, the question is, what is Matthew doing here? Right. Well, right. I think it's this. I think the fact of the matter, the historical fact, is that Jesus was, in fact, born of a virgin. And having accepted that fact, then Matthew goes back and sees if it's prophesied anywhere. And aha, he finds all kinds of parallels between the Israel of Isaiah's day and the Israel of Jesus' day. And he's like, my goodness, Isaiah's words here have a second fulfillment, mm-hmm. not only in Isaiah's own son, but here in the Messiah. So the, so the point there is that it's like a subtle argument for the historicity of the virgin birth. Yes, yes. No, I like that. I mean, so basically he's got this fact in front of him of the uh, the virgin birth, and now the question is, well, how is this—where can this be seen in the tradition that he had, you know, the Old Testament tradition? He goes back to Isaiah 7, and he sees the young uh, maiden who will bear a son. And uh, we'll come back on—can you stay with me another segment, by the way? Certainly. Okay, good. With me is Dr. Leroy Husingay. He is the author of an outstanding commentary on the lectionary readings of Matthew. It's called Behold the Christ, Proclaiming the Gospel of Matthew. I'm Al Cresta, and we'll be right back. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Leroy Husingay. He is uh, author of Behold the Christ, Proclaiming the Gospel of Matthew, and what we're doing is, again, kind of mining uh, the first chapters of Matthew for a better understanding of Jesus' uh, uh, genealogy, uh, his uh, conception, his birth, and uh, also the uh, what's commonly called the flight into Egypt. I want to come back to this use of Isaiah 714. Uh, so, as I understand it, we have Matthew. He's confronted with this fact of the virgin birth. In other words, there's no nece- he's not he's not able to look into the Old Testament and find a direct prophecy of a virgin birth. So he's faced with this historical fact, and then has to say to himself, "Hmm, this is significant. Uh, where in the tradition do I find uh, any hint of this?" He finds it in Isaiah 7.14, the word used uh, to describe the woman in Isaiah 14, I think it's, if I remember correctly, it's Alma, and that is generally used to refer to a young maiden. Is that right? Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so the Hebrew term, strictly speaking, doesn't mean virgin right. or young woman. Now, in that society, if you're a young maiden or a woman, you better be a virgin. That's right, yes. Um, yes. You know, so if, in, in some ways, it's a distinction without much of a practical difference. Mm-hmm. But the the word in Greek that Matthew actually quotes is Parthenos. Parthenos, yeah. Like, like the Parthenon, you know, in Athens, the mm-hmm. temple, you know, to the virgins. Um and that word in Greek certainly means virgin. Virgin, okay. Uh, like we think of it. And, you know, people debate just which versions of the Old Testament Matthew's working with. Mm-hmm. Uh, my own feeling is that, you know, he's working with a Greek version of the Old Testament. Okay. And, you know, part of that is simply like, you know, Matthew's written in Greek, his, you know, his readers are going to assume, yeah. you know, a Greek Old Testament background. So when Matthew quotes Isaiah seven fourteen. You know, the Greek is Parthenos, and I don't know if we need to worry too much about the Hebrew, frankly. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. Uh, so we have, um, we've talked about the genealogy, we've talked about the, well, one more question on the, the virgin birth. What's the significance of it? It's, it's cl- clearly supernatural. Um, but beyond that, what should we see as the meaning of it? Yeah, well, the the significance, the meaning is inexhaustible. Um, you know, you can plumb those depths forever. Uh, it you know it means several things. You know, Matthew gives us the first thing right out of the gate uh, that he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Mm-hmm. The incarnation, right? You know, which is you know begins with the virginal conception of Jesus. You know, the incarnation, God becoming human. Um, uh, that's the one new thing under the sun. That's the one thing without precedent in human history. You know, other than that, you know, human history is, you know, pretty steady and stable for all our supposed progress and innovations. But the incarnation, that's new. Um, You wouldn't want to say it introduces a change in God, but it introduces a fundamental change in God's relationship to the created order. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, in Mary's womb, heaven and earth uh, meet and yes. unite. Yes. And, you know, in that way, you know, a second line of significance is that, you know, the the incarnation beginning in Mary's womb, it's, it's sacramental. Because what is a sacrament but God working through stuff? Mm-hmm. And so, in many ways, the virgin conception, virgin birth, the incarnation, it's the root of all sacraments. It's the Incarnation is a sacrament par excellence, and every sacrament is a little token of the Incarnation. Um, you know, other significancies, uh, God fulfills His promises, right? Yeah. You know, God promised to come be with His people several times in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. you know, directly. Yes. Well, here He is fulfilling His promises. Yeah. Um you know, I could go on, but I think those those are three pretty important ones right off the bat. Sure. No, very good, very helpful. Uh, let me let me go to the 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 magi. Uh, who were they? Where'd they come from, really? <laughs> you know, that's a good <laughs> question. Um, you know, in in Matthew's gospel, it just says they're from the east, and that can mean, you know, anything from uh, Parthia, which was you know right over. Uh, the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, you know, that area, mm-hmm. just the other side of the Holy Land. And it could mean as far away as India or even China. And that sounds like so far away, but the ancient world had globalization too. They, people traveled. I mean, you know, Alexander the Great goes all the way into India. There, were, there was a Roman legion that got into China. 
Uh, we know this through genetics research and some uh, Chinese villages where people look Roman with blue eyes and the <laughs> classic Roman nose, and they have nicknames like Chen the Roman. Um, you know, so people got around. So it's not inconceivable that the Magi would come from far, far away. Mm-hmm. Um, in Matthew, he's Matthew himself is less concerned about their precise origins. What he's trying to do with the Magi is to start his theme of reversal. You have these pagan astrologers, right? They're astrologers. Pagan astrologers coming to worship little baby Jesus, while Herod, the half-Jewish king of the Jews, right, who's in league with the Jewish leadership, Mm -hmm. right, seeks to kill little baby Jesus. And so Matthew is setting up this idea that, you know, the church is going to be ultimately open to pagans because, uh, the Jews who should have accepted Jesus end up rejecting him. <laughs> now, your question, historically, where do they come from? I like uh, Father uh, Longenecker's oh, okay. suggestion. Sure, the Nabataean uh, Arabs. Yeah, the yeah. Nabataean Arabs. So I uh, blurbed that book. I got an advanced copy of the manuscript and read it, and I was fascinated by it. Yeah. You know, Father Dwight Longenecker did a really good job putting forth a pretty compelling suggestion about their precise origin. Yes. They come from the royal court at uh, Petra in present-day Jordan, if I recall correctly. Hey, I mean, he took the historicity of the Magi seriously, and uh, I'm glad to hear see that, because a lot of critical scholarship uh, doesn't take the Magi, you know, with historical seriousness. So... Um, mm-hmm. As this, by the way, do you in New Testament studies uh, is there is there a changing attitude towards the personalities uh, of uh, the New Testament, uh, in particular the Gospels? Uh, do, do we find a greater confidence in um, eyewitness reports as foundational to the Gospels? Or is critical scholarship still very skeptical of uh, eyewitness uh, of eyewitness foundations? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and it involves a complex answer, perhaps. So, you know, the short answer is, yeah, I think there is a new openness to reconsideration of the historicity of the Gospels. Um, why is that? Well, one reason is a lot of uh, younger scholars coming out of the evangelical world and the um, his, uh, Catholic world, you know, were brought up in a different era and have different lenses, and so we're able to see things differently in mm-hmm. ways that I think are, you know, better and truer. Yeah. Uh, so you have a lot of these uh, younger people now in their, you know, 30s, 40s, maybe early 50s, uh, producing really good good work on you know what history means and what it means for the Gospels to be historical. Uh, slightly older scholar Richard Bauckham has done a lot of work with uh, testimony, and he's not the only one. Mm-hmm. You know what's the nature of testimony in ancient world? Um, you know, and the the Gospels present themselves as testimony to Jesus. Right. Right. You know, so he's he's also one that's willing to look at a lot of um, a lot of things as historical in the Gospels. Uh, Part of it, too, is also regional. You know, Germans dominated biblical scholarship from the mid-19th to the mid-20th century. Yeah, that's true. 
Uh, and then, frankly, after the Second World War, the wider world wasn't all that interested in what Germans had to say about anything. <laughs> and that kind of, in some ways, started to break this Germanic stranglehold on scholarship. And the German scholars were always so skeptical. Uh, but there's other people in other countries, you know, like Britain and Holland and Italy, that were doing really good work that just got overshadowed by this Germanic dominance of everything. Mm-hmm. And now we're in a position where we can go back and read some of these Dutch and British and Italian and, frankly, French folk and say, you know, these scholars were overlooked and they're saying really brilliant things here. You know, Scandinavians, too. The Scandinavians are much more interested in the historicity of the Gospels um, than the Germans ever were. Hmm, interesting. So, yeah, world politics, you know. Yeah, yeah no, that's great. Uh, you know, affects scholarship very much. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. Uh, w- when we talk about the um, the Holy Innocents, uh, Martyrs, December 28th, uh, what, how many, how how many, do you have any estimate on how many uh, children were actually slaughtered? Oh, goodness. Yeah, this is a guess. You know, it could be, you know, a couple dozen, three dozen, mm-hmm. you know, to a couple hundred. Yeah. You know, villages aren't necessarily all that big back then. Right, but on the other right. hand, you know, women are having a lot of babies Yeah. yeah. back then. You know, sometimes... You know, usually five to ten, and sometimes you know ten to twenty. You know, in an age of you know like high infant mortality, where you don't have uh, easy access to contraception, though it existed in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, we shouldn't. Uh, it could be as 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 you say. It could be uh, uh, as low as a couple of dozen. It could be a few hundred. Uh, but we shouldn't think of thousands of kids being killed at that time. Yeah, probably not. Um, in some ways, you know, once you're slaying a few dozen children, I'm not sure if the numbers matter that much right. anymore. No, no, I, I get it. <laughs> you know, right? I mean, it's I a, mean, Matthew's it's, point is that Herod is a horrible human being. Yes. And, you know, whether it's twelve children or twelve hundred, you know, this is rank murder rooted by hatred of the Christ. And, and is, is it uh, is he a, a type of uh, Pharaoh, for instance? Very much so. Um, you have, I think as I mentioned earlier in Matthew, when the Holy Family flees to Egypt, it's a reverse exodus. Like in right. the Old Testament, the Israelites uh, flee Egypt for the Holy Land, but now you have the ultimate Israelite, Jesus, the embodiment of Israel, fleeing uh, Israel now and finding refuge in Egypt. Wow. And, I mean, that's absolutely shocking. It really you is. Know, again, we... Yeah, we live post-World War II. And, you know, so for us, Adolf Hitler is the worst person in the world. Right. You know, you want to make a a satanic comparison. Right. Yep. Yeah, you want to make a silly comparison, you call a politician Hitler. Right. 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 Um, Which is is just, you know, horrible. I mean, Hitler was singular. But prior to Hitler, the worst person in the world in Western memory was Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. You wanted to say somebody was awful, you compared him to Pharaoh. So you have... Herod uh, slaughtering these children, these innocents, with the Holy Family now fleeing to Egypt. And a lot of people can overlook this, but the first couple chapters of Exodus, what do you have? Well, you have a pharaoh slaying children, instituting a program of systematic genocide against the Hebrew people 
by requiring uh, baby boys to be killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you go back to Matthew, and he has in chapter 2 this quotation of Hosea 11, Out of Egypt I have called my son. But Matthew sticks the quotation right in the place where the Holy Families just showed up in Egypt. <laughs> right. Right? Right. You know, it says out of Egypt, but they're in Egypt. They just got there. Mm-hmm. And so some scholars, right, um, thinking they're smarter than Matthew, think Matthew just puts a quotation in the wrong place. <laughs> Matthew is some kind of doofus. Or right, something. he kind of slapped it in there. He, was, he, he, yeah. <laughs> he needed it's, something it's to prop himself up. to read some of this stuff. Right. You know, um, what Matthew's actually doing there is inverting Israel and Egypt. Right? He's mm-hmm. suggesting that the Israel of Jesus' day is just as murderous and bad as the uh, Egypt of the Exodus generation. Right. It's, I mean, and that's really shocking stuff. It is. And, and, and again, it also points to uh, the, fir- the coming uh, rejection of the Jewish leadership of Jesus. Uh, wow, this is great stuff. And it, re- it shows us how uh, rich uh, Matthew's thinking is and how steeped he is in the tradition uh, of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Uh, Dr. Husengay, thank you so much. Uh, hope we can talk again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. It's called Behold the Christ, proclaim- Proclaiming the Gospel of Matthew, Dr. Leroy Husengay.